No, no, it's got to be, are we there yet? How far to the summit? Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. But <laughs> you know what? Oh, my God, I don't even know if I can try this. So I want to go home as uh, Nigarti Mondizi Niowig Own Minok. Very good. So, yeah, it's perfect. Wow. Right on the money. Yeah. Hey, this is a good one for all the couples out there. This is some. sometimes you do not listen to me. Seau i nata kapest awipa. Sometimes you do not listen to me. Yeah. Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire. Welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts. Mike and Stomp. Episode 51, but I'm turning 50, Stomp. When? When's your birthday again? It's tomorrow, so oh. I brought Martin in here to counsel me in my old age. <laughs> oh, that's cool, man. Happy birthday. Yeah, thank you. It's a big one. Happy birthday. Thank you. When you guys turned 50, did Martin, did you... I still, like, think in terms of, like, when I'm, like... 15 or, or 20 do you did you feel like you were still like mentally still pretty immature for compared to where you when you were 50 yeah um 50 is one of those fa- stages where you kind of deny you're 50 <laughs> and you pretend you're 30 for a while uh at least i did and uh but man uh, it is a turning point for everybody that is pretty much the classic turning point right to going into a new phase yeah, of life. yeah, sure. yeah. so i'm glad you're here tonight martin because i'm going to need some therapy session later Happy to help. You Happy have to, to help. give me some positive, a positive outlook on getting older here. So, yeah. anyway, but Dom Stomp, we got a few things I wanted to get through before we do the intro. Um, one is just a shout out that the the Trail Steward program, those folks that like um, sort of check, they don't check, they just sort of give information to hikers at the trailheads, the, the busy trailheads. Yeah. There is a volunteer, you can volunteer to be part of that that group. Okay. And uh, there's a like a, a Google form that you can basically um, sign up for, and the training I think starts April second, so it's pretty close. So we'll we'll be get the link releasing this show. Yeah, I got the links all included in the show notes. Uh, okay. But the training is on April second from eight a.m. to twelve, and then there's like additional like field mentoring that will be required. But they operate. The trailhead stewards operate at uh, Welsh. I didn't know they that they work at uh, Welsh Dickey for training um, purposes. For I guess that that's where they operate is uh, Welsh Dickey. Yeah. Oh, I see. Falling Waters, Champney Falls, Amanusic, and then Appalachia. Those are the big trailheads that they work out of. Yeah, I, I actually met those fellas uh, at Welsh Dickey. Um, it was nice. Nice to talk to them. Yeah, good yeah, people. So anyway. Um, so if you're interested in volunteering, I know we had um, Karen on uh, probably about 20 shows ago that t- talked a little bit about the Trail Stewart program. So keep that in mind if you're interested. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, Stomp, that I didn't get to in the last episode where we were talking with uh, Cheswick, when we talked about the hike that I did on Franconia when I went up Old Bridal, yeah. one of the main reasons why I wanted to do that hike was... Um, the kid, Michael Miller, who was an MIT student in 1983, he's the one that went missing right. off of Old Bridal. Remember, remember that, that story? Many, many years ago, correct? 
1983. So he was hiking in early November with two other friends. They went up Old Bridal and then uh, decided to go off trail for whatever reason. I don't really know why. Um, I've, I've posted some of the old news stories, so I'll include those in the show notes as well. But the, the news articles at the time said that they had made it about 30 minutes up the old bridal trail. So when I did that hike, I just I timed myself and I looked down at about 30 minutes. And basically, you get to this point where you're coming up on a ridge, but you can't even view the peaks. Right. So there's like to me, it makes no sense that they would have gone off trail, because if I were going to go off trail there, I would have. I would have been like, okay, I can see they probably would have thought that it was Lafayette, but it was really they really get a view of Lincoln early on when you get on Old Bridal. Sure. But my guess is that apparently the friends went with him and then turned around because it was too thick. They've got to be in he has to be in one of those two drainages. Sure. Um that they're both called I think Walker Brook drainage, but they split off. Yeah. So we gotta go on a little hunting mission stomp, I think, at some point and check that area out. Well, the the western side of that point is all cliff too, yeah, which would not be good. Yeah, it's and it's a steep drop off. So what I what I'm thinking is that maybe if they went down into that drainage, and then they his friends turned around and bailed out, but maybe he tried to climb out of the drainage to get back up on onto the trail system, and then got in trouble somewhere got lost along there. I don't know. Refresh my memory. What season? This was in um, I think November. Okay. So you got to figure pre winter because what happened was is that the weather was okay and he he had no backpack or anything he was just wearing a sweater and a leather jacket and I'm assuming like work boots okay and um the friends got separated they didn't see him up top they they came back down waited for him he didn't come back they drove home and then they started the search and within like I think that night one of the first snowstorms came in. And it dropped below freezing, and then that was it. They were sort of racing against time. Okay, interesting. Let's go do some searching. Very weird. A lot of acreage. Yeah, yeah. So, But the thing I just don't understand is why he would have gone off trail, because you just can't see. You don't. It's an old bridle. You don't get to a point where you can see the the ridge until you get up above um, the drainage. So, yeah. A couple little old like herd paths that branch off into Walker Brook too, just before you get to the hairpin. I mean, it's a little bit confusing in that area if you're not paying attention. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, very interesting story and yeah. a, a very interesting mystery. Anyway, um, but other updates I have is our friend Matt that was here on episode 44. Him and his wife have started on the uh, PCT. I've been following them. So he's been posting updates. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So both of them are going? Both of them are going, so... Is that, is that his girlfriend or wife, or...? That's his wife, yeah. Oh, okay. That's right. Wow. She's a she's a brave soul. Yeah, yeah. He's a, like an experience. You know, he, he apparently does a lot of miles, but I think that they're going slow to ease her into it. So he's, he's doing like five or eight, five to ten miles a day. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. I hope they're uh, safe out there. Yeah. Did you see the video that he posted? So he's on TikTok. I'll, I'll post this in the show notes, but he had a video where they're in the desert because it's in the southern section and they ran out of water and he had to basically decide whether yeah, he, two choices. he hikes like four miles. Yeah. He would hike four miles to the water source or he could go off trail and hike like two and a half miles. And then I guess he decided he just ran, got the water and his wife waited for him and then they went up. Interesting. 
I can't. I can imagine this would be a trial by fire for their marriage. <laughs> can you imagine? I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I could not imagine doing that. Hats off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and good for her. For I think oh, she she, awesome. she was hiking with him a little bit, um, but I I don't know if she I don't think she did a through hike. I think he did the through hike and then met her on the through hike somehow through like Tinder or something. Yeah. Wow. They'll probably uh, cross paths with Jez <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. He can, he can point the way down to the, the Everglade water if they need it. <laughs> yes. yes. Here, let me show you <laughs> this way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so some other notes here, Stomp, that we have is uh, Dave Dillon, who was on a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was finally got a chance to check out his video on the InReach Mini versus the InReach Mini 2. Yeah. So I think I'm going to buy the, the InReach um, 2, the Mini 2. Okay. And it looks pretty cool. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't have anything to compare it to, but he said the, big, the key differences between the old version and the new version is that there's a new user interface. Um, it locks on the GPS a lot quicker. It's got a better battery life, and um, I guess it's got connectivity to your phone. So, like, you don't need your phone to be connected to a cell tower. It'll connect to the in-reach, and then you can text through your phone, and it'll message to the in-reach through Bluetooth, hmm. and then push it out to satellite. So, yeah. What's the uh, subscription for this? Uh, $3.99 for the unit, and then the subscription... I can't remember what he said. I think it's like 14 bucks a month or something. That's but you can get bad. the freedom plan that you can shut off. And I think that's a little more expensive. Gotcha. Okay. So. Yeah. It's um, just like a Netflix subscription. Yeah, exactly. Uh, other updates. I have <laughs> t-shirts, hats, stickers, all that stuff. Um, I'm going to, uh, I've been sla I've been going back and forth on it, but I am ordering some sample t-shirt stomp. So I'll send you a couple and then assuming you like them and I like them, we're just going to put an order in. We'll, we'll solicit orders and then put an order in, get them done. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, it's been a long an, uh, time coming. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm slacking. So Martin, you're like a marketing guy. You, you've, you've definitely had to like order t-shirts. Like I made the mistake yeah. of like asking people their opinions about like what they like and they don't like, and everybody like has input. And I just, I just froze. I was like, I don't know what, what to do. So do what you want to do. Do what I it's just uh, say, screw everybody and do what it, I, yeah, too many opinions it will ruin any idea. Yeah. So just do what you do, what your original instincts are telling you. And you're probably not far off. All right. All right. So oh. I should have reached out to you sooner, Martin, got your opinion. So, well, I, it took me like 30 years to learn that 30 years to be in, you know, yeah. Trying to be democratic about it and yeah. you know, learning from <laughs> all that. But yeah. yeah, do what you want to do. Yeah. How, how wrong? That's it. Yeah. It's, it's, your, it's your podcast. It's your website. Go ahead. I know. I'm, I'm trying to be nice. I like want to. I want to include everyone, but I can't. I, I just got to bite the bullet and get something done. So um, I apologize to the audience. Like what I pick is not going to be what everybody wants, and I'm sorry. But like, if you don't like the T-shirt, you can get a hat, and I'll, or I'll send you a free sticker. So, Mike, here's, here's one thing you learn in marketing. There's no idea so good that somebody somewhere isn't going to criticize it and make you feel bad about it. So just ignore <laughs> That's it. True. That's true. That's <laughs> true. So, oh, all boy. right. Um, so anyway, hat, uh, hats and T-shirts and stickers are coming. Um, 
update on what we talked about for the COG. So there's a petition against the COG putting railroad cars up on Mount Washington. They got 15,000 signatures so far. Against. Did you sign stomp? Yeah. No, 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 no. Uh, Like I said during that episode, I think I actually agree with this plan. (laughs) Let's put it to rest. I think it's reasonable looking at all the legal arguments like, okay, let's just finish this off here. It's not going to be bad. And you know, the cool thing is, is that they also, in conjunction with the the plan for lodging up there and and dining, uh, they just made this announcement that the Rock Hopper Racing is, it looks like they're partnering with the COG and they announced that they're going to have a race on, uh, oh crap, I forget the date. I think it's like June 17th or something like that. Hold on. I'll tell June 25th. So it's on June 25th and you can race the cog. So there's like three levels. There's going to be like, if you're fast, you can race the fast train. If you're medium, you can race the medium train. And then if you're slow, you can race like a slower version of a train. And the good news on this is that they've made a commitment that they're going to, they're going to clean up all the debris on the side of the track before the race. What? Before the yeah. day of the race, like a week before or something like that? I don't know what the deal is, but the, on the race page, it says that as part of the rate, as part of the planning, they will be cleaning up the debris on the tracks. And there's not a ton of debris. There's some, but it's not, I, I wouldn't think it's going to take them that much effort to clean it up. I, yeah, still, it's going to be a, a good amount of work. <laughs> no question about it. But that's pretty yeah. cool. I remember that was one of the um, the complaints in this whole debate about whether they should uh, get that right to build up there is that they yeah. weren't very good stewards, but uh, who knows? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's reasons for the for that debris sitting there. I don't yeah. know, but it sounds like they're going to clean it up, which is great. Cool. Um, another thing I have here, Stomp, is Julie Murray, who is Mara Murray's sister. So we've talked about Mara Murray multiple times on the show. So she's been missing since 2004. She's a UMass college student that um, was in the nursing program there, former West Point um, cadet who had transferred to UMass, um, had some personal problems and some challenges and decided to, um, I guess, skip school for the day, drove up north. She had some connections to the hiking community. Um, her, she, she had an accident in Haverhill, New Hampshire, and um, very quickly, police were on the scene, witnesses were on the scene, and she, she disappeared, never to be seen again. So uh, it's a it's a pretty pretty well-known mystery. And I just wanted to give a, a plug to her sister, Julie Murray, who was also a West Point cadet. She has been largely quiet over the years around uh, details of, of uh, Mara's situation, but she's opened it up in the last couple of years. She's been on podcast, and she's recently started a TikTok channel called Mara Murray Missing. And Julie breaks down a lot of the um, a lot of the details of the case, and I definitely encourage anyone to go and check out what Julie's doing. She definitely loves her sister, and she's doing what she can to try to find her. Hmm. Um, you know, she does a great job on these TikToks, and it's it's definitely worth checking her out. Are the videos uh, limited to that like fifteen second bite? She, so she has enough followers that she can do a three. She does three minute videos sometimes. Okay. Uh, but sometimes she'll do a one minute video. They're not 15 seconds. They're usually like one minute to three minutes. Gotcha. So, hmm. um, but, but definitely worth checking her out, uh, for sure. And then last but not least, Stomp, you had sent me a wingsuit video. So you said you wanted to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, I found it pretty fascinating. And I was curious if there 
were heights in the whites that were high enough to propel these things. Um, I'm, I don't know much about it. And then, you know, the first things that came to mind would be like, uh, you know, Cannon Cliffs or Bond Cliff or let's say the, the head wall of Tux. Like, do we have enough height to launch these things? And I was really curious about that. I went online and did some research. Yeah. What'd you find out? I mean, I don't know much about these. So what we're talking about is those like parachute base jumping people that have those like um, like squirrels, the wingsuits. Do you know what we're talking about, Martin? They're like the squirrel suit. I've been following the wingsuit thing for quite a while. And my gut tells me, no, there's not enough vertical anywhere. Okay. I think you need at least 5,000 sheer feet or close to sheer feet to do that. And I can't think of a 5,000 foot cliff. No. I know Tuckerman's isn't enough. So before the suit actually catches... I think you need to really, and not only that, but I think you need a, an updraft in oh, some gotcha. way. I think you need some kind of a, a cooperative airflow. And I get, I get the feeling of dead air in, in Franconia Notch. I can't see, can't, I wouldn't, I mean, somebody would have done it already, wouldn't they? Yeah, I think. Yeah. I mean, there were some hang gliders at one point, weren't there? There's, the there's definitely gliders down. on Franconia on summer days. You'll see the gliders and yeah. they, they can hold. I, I don't. I don't think wingsuits, I think they need a lot more vertical than that. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what yeah. what I found online was at 600 meters, so I think that's about 1,800, maybe 2,000 feet, um, seems to be like the minimum. But you're right, Martin. I think that a lot of those guys do. Like 2,000 feet? Yeah. I think. Don't they also need a lake to land in? I don't know how they land. They can land on 93. That's fine. <laughs> I think some of them will have a parachute, but I think I think it will parachute down. But I think a lot of them like kind of like land in a lake. I don't know. I see, it's amazing. I'm just surprised there's not more red streaks on the side of the rocks where oh, they yeah. are. It's remarkable, it really isn't is. it? Well, uh, it's. I think that a lot of them do die. I think that like because yeah. I was doing some research and at least two of the well-known ones that I was reading about, like they said that they, you know they died in 2014. One of them died. 20, 2016 or something. So, uh, and then Stomp didn't somebody, somebody that had responded to the the, uh, the Instagram post. He had said that like they all those guys die as well. Let's get uh, let's get Tom Becker in here. He's a base jumper. He can give us some full and one on that. I think they yeah. all have back, you know the parachutes on their back as well. So I think they jump, catch, and then they release the chute at the very end. I believe that's part of it generally. You know, we're going to talk about Mont Blanc later, yeah. and uh, I, there's there's one uh, wingsuit video I saw where uh, from the top of the Agui du Midi, somebody jumped off and went through this little notch yes. between two. It's like it's only about I've been there. It's only about fifty feet wide, and this guy somehow got went right under the over the bridge that goes across the two. Yeah. going what 150 miles an hour in a wingsuit? I mean, it's insane. Yeah. That is Insane. that's crazy. So that it's is risk. not uh, that's not a way to live a long life for sure. So yeah. All right, stop. So sponsors and uh, and coffee talk yeah. here. Let's see. We have some donations. Ar donated five coffees. Someone donated five, and I believe we know who that is by this point. Um, let's see. This person. This is like speaking Apanaki. Okay, so it's Hara Ruwopi donated one. Thank you for making that challenging. Uh, Kendra from Bevtown, who I bumped into in Smartsbrook. Kendra, thank you so much for the donation. Uh, this old Ford Ranger donated three. Uh, thank you very much. That's my brother and my sister-in-law. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. 
That's super I met cool. Marissa and Loki and Addie. <laughs> Who's Loki? A kitty? Loki's the, they got a dog. Ah, there. gotcha. Awesome. We'll have an East dog. Must be hike, uh, Viking fans. Yes. Uh, let's see. And finally, Sarah donated three. Thank you so much. And let's just give a plug to uh, Reckless Brewing, where you'll enjoy the best food, craft beer, and fun. Just 15 minutes from Franconia Notch. Many 4K footers and less than 10 minutes from the Five Corners. Boom. Very good, Stomp. So yeah. anything else before I do the show summary? No, man. We're good. Let's move on. All right. Well, welcome to episode 51 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. This week, we are joined once again by our friend Martin Pisani. Stomp, do you want to do your Pisani? Pisani! Hey! (laughs) Nice, nice. So he's here to provide... That's not even close to the right pronunciation. (laughs) (laughs) Is it... Were we both off on the pronunciation? No, you know, with a double Z, you got to put the T in there, like pizza. It's pizza. Oh, really? Pizza. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, we don't pronounce it that way, because that's how you pronounce it in Italy. It's yeah, you got it right. I'm an Irishman, so I'm no good. But but anyway, Martin is going to give me a therapy session to help process reaching the ripe old age of 50. Um, and he's the perfect guy to visit this week uh, to help me with this. So Martin is a, uh, he's an author, an entrepreneur, accomplished mountaineer, an avid white mountain hiker. Um, he, we previously covered his book, Secrets of Aging Well, Get Outside. So we'll talk a little bit more about some of the, the themes in his book, his writing. And then he's going to share some new stories of his international travel and update us on some of the, uh, the new writing that he's done. And then later in the show, Stomp and uh, I think Martin's going to help him. They're going to do a deep dive on water filtration and water strategies. Oh. And then we'll, we'll close out the show with what will be at least for me, a disastrous attempt at breaking down some common hiking phrases in the Native American Abenaki language. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. All right. All right. So beer talk, Stomp. You got anything? Yeah, I do. I'm on a roll here. I'm enjoying a Northwoods Brewing Company beer. It's uh, it's called Evening Rise unfiltered lager and they it's called a young lager or a young pilsner that is and it's interesting on the back i just noticed i just plugged this in it says beer should take you somewhere and it has lat long so i just plugged it into google earth and it pulls up uh, a location which looks like a restaurant but it's right next to northwood lake so super cool idea putting uh, <laughs> coordinates on your beer to go check out <laughs> So it's actually really good. I had one last night uh, when we had to reschedule this evening. So I'm going to open it now and enjoy. Enjoy. Yeah. Martin, you drinking anything? Actually, I didn't think of that. I should have because I got someone sent me a sample recently of uh, two things. One, did you know Kelsey Grammer has a beer? No, no, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. He's done a little craft beer and he was uh, promoting it uh, in the Northeast and someone sent me a four pack of it. So I've got that. He's a Connecticut guy, right? I can't even remember the name. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, anyway, that and then I'm, I'm, I'm working with a friend on a project who's got this really cool Irish whiskey called Hooligan's Soup okay. that uh, I broke out last night and had a sip of. It's really excellent. An excellent dr- sipping whiskey. That's an it's awesome name. Irish it, it is. And, and you know, I'll show you the label and whatever some other time, but it's really cool. It's really cool. If you're, if you've got any Irish DNA or relatives, you'll love it. Hooligan soup. That's a, that's a, that's a good name though. I like that a lot. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm drinking. So stomp. You'll be proud of me. I went to the uh, local liquor store and I'm always like, 
Whenever I need to get beer, I'm always trying to get something that like aligns with the theme of the show. So last week we had the skateboarding. <laughs> this week I like was looking and looking and it like it was immediate. I saw this. It's called Aeronaut Native Land. And it's uh, brewed on the ancestral lands of the Penacook and Pawtucket. So it's an IPA. Um, and it's brewed by the Arrow Brewing Company in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So huh. I figured we're going to be talking a little bit Native American. So I thought that this would be a good beer. Yeah, my mine unintentionally lines up too because it has a big fish on it. And, you know, certain purifiers will not pick up uh, the fish turd when you're about to drink your water. So I yeah. guess I could line up. Looking good. Yeah. I like that beer. Yeah, it's got yeah. the arrowheads on there and stuff. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Just making this more complicated for me. Now I have to come up with themes. You know how I got this, by the way? I was walking down the aisle at Market Basket, and I randomly reached to my right and just grabbed a four without looking at it, and I grabbed this one. So I was like, thank God, no IPA. (laughs) (laughs) Well, nice work. Yeah. All right. So moving on to uh, recent hikes. So I have not, I have nothing to share. I think my last hike was Franconia. I'm going to get out next weekend uh, for sure, but I'm, I'm going into Boston this week with my wife to celebrate the birthday. But um, Stomp, anything with you? Yeah, I've been out a ton uh, with Mrs. Stomp for the most part. We, uh, we've been hitting a lot of stuff in Smartsbrook. That's where we bumped into uh, Kendra, a listener. That was really nice. Kendra, nice to meet you. I wish we could have talked longer, but uh, we were all struggling to survive. Did she say, did she say how she knew it was you? Um, well, yeah, it's sort of interesting. She said that she saw my truck. In the parking okay. lot, which is interesting to me because we've talked about the truck a little bit, but I don't think we've really gone into like <laughs> descriptive <laughs> detail. But anyway, she put two and two together. Good for her. And uh, yeah, we saw, I mean, Smartsbrook is crazy right now. It's, it's glare ice everywhere. So it was just amazing that anybody made it out of there alive, you know, just all kidding aside. But uh, nice to meet you, Kendra. Let's see. Um, we actually did Webster Slide too, off of Route 25 in Glencliff, and that's a that's actually the the AT terminus for the Appalachian Trail. And um, you know, it starts off for a mile, really steep, and then it flattens off and descends down to. Uh, this is a, the speaking of Indian languages here, Lake Wachapaka. So we had this joke on all day, like Wachapaka. Um, <laughs> And uh, we made it to the top of Webster Slide. Man, you people got to get out there. It's a beautiful spot. Webster Slide is so sweet. And uh, yeah. So that's, if, so I'm just looking at my map right now. So that's basically the, I got to, I have to do this section. So this is the section between, so I've exited off of Mount Cube and then it's I need nearby. to get this. Yeah, I have to go north. Mm-hmm. And close out at like Jeffers Brook and Musalaki to close out that little section there. So Webster Slide Mountain would be part of that. So that's on the plan for this spring, I think. Yeah, blueberries over there too. And if you go further north, you you can tap into um, uh, Black Black Mountain, which is yep. super cool. Yeah, I've hiked all those. Yeah, um, and just to the west of uh, Webster, you can actually see Lake Tarleton. I finally got that word right. I thought it was Charlton, but it's tarl- Tarleton, which isn't that a um, Scottish garb, Tarleton? I'm not sure, but I think that, don't they, isn't it like a fishing hatchery between like that lake and another one? 
I, I think I'm not really like sure. A hatchery over there. I'm not really sure. But uh, long story short, I'm super achy from all that. Oh, God, did you guys hear about this new uh, superhero movie that's coming out? You gotta, you gotta hear about this. It's crazy. It's a superhero with a lisp that works out too much. I feel like there's going to be a bad joke coming, but continue. He's Thor. Oh, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Thor. Yeah. He's Thor. Oh boy! I told you there was a bad joke coming, Martin. You just knew it. You felt it in your bones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, oh boy. Um, so Webster slide, you did um, Smartsbrook, anything else? Oh, shoot. I forgot. Yeah. Uh, Acting on Ridge part two. I went up this time with uh, Micro Spikes and I made it up through that boulder field that I bottlenecked on the first trip. And Mike, we have to go up there. I have to show you these back route trails up to that, uh, that overlook. It's amazing. It's totally doable. It's nothing overwhelming. There were actually a lot of climbing routes that I'm sort of fleshing out right now. So it's super cool up there. Yeah. I'd like to do some sort of a loop where we go out to, um, we go through that area and then end up on Jennings and then come back out or something. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've done that. Uh, I've bushwhacked from Bald Peak to Jennings and it's actually not that bad. Uh, so I'd love to show you that, man. It's great. Okay. That's, that's a deal. Yeah, we'll do that. For sure. And then Martin, because I haven't done any hiking, I've been slacking. Do you got any recent hikes you want to highlight? Nothing uh, of note. I've been staying local. Uh, Connecticut uh, stuff isn't, I don't even know if it qualifies as hiking, but there's a place called High Rock here in central Connecticut, which is a place I've been going to since I was about 14. Yeah. And uh, it's a state park. Naugatuck River runs through it. It's on the border of Naugatuck and uh, Beacon Falls. Nice little 500 vertical feet up to a hill and a cliff. That's not bad. But that's about it. Yeah. You know, I didn't get up to the whites. I think I might have mentioned when we talked last week. I didn't get up to the whites once this winter, which may be a first in 50 years. Wow. So uh, can't afford the gas anymore. You know, it's a full tank of gas to get up there. Seriously. And, that's uh, true. Yeah, it's crazy. But no, that's no excuse. I, I should have been up. I should. I didn't do much winter this year. Are you just getting over you overcome with work at this point? Yeah, it was work. And I, I think I mentioned I got COVID. I know you did too. We both got sick. Yeah. I got pretty sick in December, January. So um, totally recovered from that. It wasn't that bad. But, uh, you know, just busy and uh, distracted. And, you know, it's one of those things. Yeah, yeah. The COVID thing, I mean, as much as like it wasn't, you know, when I look back at it now and I think about it, it was like three days of the flu. But then I had like a mm. week of like legit fatigue and then I had like six weeks of just this persistent cough. And it like when you total it all up, it just got me in a funk. And it was just like, even though COVID's like not that bad, like when you're in it, like stop, you had the same thing. It's just like, yeah. you're right. It, it, it took me out for two months, really. I did some research, too, because when I got it, I, I developed I was doing the snowmobiling thing at the time. So I think that was part of it. But I, I assessed myself. I don't think I have carpal tunnel. I have had this very mild like i want to call it like a uh like almost like a palsy it's very subtle like my i have a hard time like tying my shoes or turning doorknobs but it's getting better so it prompted me to do some research and believe not some people are experiencing this weird side effect where there's like this i don't know what the hell it is but it's actually getting better um and i would say it was carpal but unfortunately it's it's elsewhere it's my neck, it's my leg, my hip. It's very strange, but it's resolving. So who knows? 
Now, Martin, do you go out in Connecticut a lot or is it just occasional for you? I try to get out once a week, Mike. Um, I, I'm near a few places. I'm not far from Bear Mountain, which is a nice little hike. Um, a place called Steep Rock Preserve is just down the road in Litchfield County. It's a nice little hike. Not much vertical, but, you know, it's woody and it goes by a river. So not a lot of vertical, but lots of places to hike. I mean, lots. And then just two miles from my house is a, a big uh, reservoir that's got about 50 miles of hiking in it and uh oh, wow. yeah that's my go-to place to get out there so right. yeah no complaints I, mean, I can get out quite often yeah. um but you know i miss i miss the vertical i miss the whites run i'm not up there quite a bit yeah. so well uh, hopefully you'll uh, you'll get up there soon let me know when you do head yeah. up there we'll, uh, we'll... Uh, yeah we're definitely gonna have to connect this season for sure it's time for slasher's guest of the week very cool very cool We might as well just get right into your segment here, Martin. So um, just again, so we've introduced you already, but I, do you want to just sort of give a quick quick overview of your, your background and a little bit about your writing and a little bit about your background in mountaineering and hiking? Yeah, so um, yeah, I've I'm, uh, been hiking and climbing for about 50 years. I started literally, the first major hike I ever went on was this place, High Rock, where I just mentioned when I was 14 in Boy Scouts. And um so since then, I've taken it to seven continents. Um, I, I like to say when I on the back cover of my book, I've got 100 million uphill steps over 50 years on seven continents. <laughs> um, a lot of it climbing, a lot of it hiking, and a lot of it training for, for climbing. Um, my background is I'm a career marketing guy in big corporations. About 10 years ago, I became an entrepreneur, got a few of my own companies. But somewhere along the line, I got the idea of writing this book uh, that kind of was combination of what I know about hiking and what I know about brain health, because one of my companies is a brain health company. And then adding to that some of my personal story and the stories of about 100 people I interviewed and uh, talked to and got some of those in the book. So um, because I'm into anti-aging, which will help, will help you tonight, um, I thought that was the angle to take with the book. Nobody needed another hero book about climbing a mountain or whatever. I think people needed a book about the benefits and, and how hiking, as I like to refer to it, is the fountain of youth. And I, I would suspect also that three of us having COVID, one of the reasons we were reasonably uh, resilient to it, even though we had it, was because we are hikers. I, I think hiking just make, gives your immunity system, immune system such a boost and makes you physically, gives you physical reserves that uh, the you know, common the people who don't hike don't have, unless they're super fit from some other way. But I think we have a resilience as a result of hiking that uh, is a real benefit. And that some of that is in the book. So, you know, it's a little bit of hiking, a little bit of technique, a little bit of storytelling, a little bit of uh, fitness and brain health and um, mashed all together with some, I think, some interesting hiking stories. And, you know, we had the bad fortune, I think, in some ways to uh, to introduce it literally a month after the COVID crisis started. So, you know, even though getting outside was probably the number one thing people should do more for the first year, people were kind of um, just scared, scared indoors. And um, I actually had a, a whole speaking gig set up with REI. And of course, they closed all the REI stores for the first six months. So that went, that went wayside. So that's what's prompted me to write the second edition of the book now. Okay. And I'm tweaking it a little bit. We'll talk about that later. But uh, I give it a fair shot now when it's uh, post-COVID. We'll see, see how that does. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, like, I, you know, I've read your book. I was actually looking at it again tonight, uh, a couple of days ago, just from preparation for this. And I think for me, the... 
the epiphany I had after going through it, and I had sort of been thinking about this for a while, and then the, your you know, your writing kind of like sealed it for me. But like I had gotten to the point where you know, chronic injuries with running was always an issue for me, and you know, my mindset was always like go 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 and push myself as hard as I can, and. I wasn't really thinking in the long term as much as I should have. So your book sort of like gives you a perspective around like, you know, challenge yourself, be resilient, but also don't forget that it's the long game and that, um, you know, the goal is, is to be not just be active and, and be, um, you know, doing adventures all the time, but do it in a way that allows you to extend the quality of your life well past what we normally think of as, um you know, the, the age of retirement. And I think that there's, it's changing quite a bit, but it used to be this sort of this idea that like, okay, you work, then you retire. And then once you're retired, you leave it, lead, leave a sedentary life. And, and, you know, you, your health usually just goes downhill pretty quickly. And that's just not, you know, the way it, to go. There's, there's a quote, uh, I, I don't know why I tag it, but it's exactly what you just said. There's a quote in the book on page 63. We do not stop exercising because we grow old. We grow old because we stop exercising. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's really true. That's pretty much hmm. the book. Um, you, you, you can completely delay. Uh, you can change the trajectory or the way you age by staying fit. Now, how do you stay fit? We're talking about hiking. I think hiking is is about the best thing you can do because it has cognitive and physical benefits, and it gives you goals. Uh, goals are important in this equation here. That's why we you know we talked about that list of things. I always like to have a list of projects that I'm shooting for because you stop planning about planning a list, you stop exercising, and you start to slide down that trajectory of aging. And you can fight that for a really long time if you stay fit. Yeah. So that's you know that's that's really the central message of the of the book is it's the antidote to uh, to aging, and what comes with that is the, you know, the general idea that no you don't have to retire in fact you shouldn't retire at sixty five because that contributes to cognitive decline and 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 kind of what, what are you going to do play you know golf or or sit on the couch and watch Netflix I mean I I personally have set my goal to not retire until I'm at the earliest seventy five. And um, and then then maybe relax and enjoy things. You know, when when the retirement age was set at sixty five, life expectancy was sixty six. So you know, the, the intent wasn't to retire and then live thirty years doing nothing. The intent was enjoy a year or two before you before you're done. So um, I, I think we we're gonna have to deal with that uh, as a culture soon. Mm-hmm. But uh, in any case, I, I just think retiring is a way of giving up. And uh, when you give up, you you go down that. Uh, that bad path just think of those like sadistic government actuaries who came up with that idea of retirement age back then <laughs> i know it was was a uh, br- brilliantly sadistic you must, you gotta admit yeah. this came up right? yeah exactly so um stomp it's so funny like this came up like i was so stomp runs the instagram account for us and i was like i want to post a picture it was like stomp was posting all this stuff and i was like i want to put i don't know how to do stories or any of that stuff but i was like i want to find something with stomp so i look back and i got i got a video of us hiking mount parker in 2019 we've talked about this hike before it was like it was a tough hike and the thing that struck me is i got a video of stomp breaking trail in front of me and this was like when his hip was going out. And this was like, the, I think this was the moment stomp where you realize like, okay, this is, yeah. this is real well, with my hip situation. And I could see the pain in that, well, that dude, hike. That's why I was using hiking poles. I mean, yeah. that's like the only time you would ever see me using poles. I was trying to unload the hip. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I didn't exactly. want to give up that activity and, and health and everything else. Cool video. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But it made me, it makes me think about all the stuff that Martin's raising around, like, you know, if you push yourself, thank God that we're, we live in the time that we live in where we have this amazing surgeries that can, can fix people's hips and joints and things like this. But, um, it just makes me think too. It's like, not just the COVID, but like the fact that you were always physically fit allowed you to bounce back a lot quicker, I think, than it would have otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. Being fit gives you what's called physical reserve. That physical reserve is, is really important when you need it. When you get sick, if you need surgery, it allows you to bounce back from things. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah absolutely. All right. So we'll we'll dig into some of the stuff um, in a little bit more detail in a minute here. But one of the things, Martin, I asked you, and I want to start asking some of the guests that we have in the next few shows because we're starting the summertime. I wanted to see if you could give us three awesome things that you would recommend uh, for this summer. It could be anything, you know, if it's tied to yeah. the whites or whatever, but what, what do you got? Yeah, you know, I, there's so many things to choose from. Limiting it to three is, is tough. But, you know, the, the theme of my book is not to put out these extreme adventures. Anybody can say do the Franconia Ridge, right? Anybody can say do the Presidential Traverse. Those are great things. But I, there's, some, there's some things that are just real special to me that aren't extreme and are accessible, and, and I love them. And, you know, one, one of my go-to things, I just love – Staying in the Lafayette campground, hiking up to Lonesome Lake and hanging out in that general area, going around the lake and maybe go up a I little agree. higher. But so it doesn't good. have to be at the top of something. You know, I just I just like that area. Plus, you get this great view of, you know, of Lafayette and the ridge. It's just such a nice vibe. And in the same basic area, you laugh. I love going up to Artist Bluff. It's just a great spot. Oh, hell yeah. And that's why it's the cover of my book. It's me standing on Artist Bluff. I just think that's got such a great symmetry to it. Uh, Franconia Notch. I've been going there since I was like 12. You know, my parents used to camp up in Lafayette Campground, so it's special to me. So that's always great. But if you want something a little more adventurous, for me, it doesn't get any better than Boncliff. I just love Boncliff. It's, to me, one of the most special places in the Whites. Uh, I think it's the most remote point in, in all the Whites. I would say it? so, yeah. It's the furthest from the road. I think yeah. it is. But it's just such a great spot and uh, pretty and uh, remote and hardly ever got people there. No, it's a great spot. Boncliff. Awesome. Um, and then Lafayette Campground. So you've said this to, you've actually said this to me before. So when you're up in the whites, that's like your, um, you don't stay in a hotel or anything. You typically stay at the campground. Uh, I do. I mix it. I mix you it. Mix it. I, I, I like camping, but I, I also like a little, a few creature comforts. I've, I got to admit, I've stayed at the Mount Washington hotel. Okay. I, I stay at some of the places in Franconia. I stay in the huts when I want, you know, and I don't feel like carrying a tent. So, yeah, you know, getting up in years, you don't want to lug it all around. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, every now and then you want to take a shower when you're done. That's just, <laughs> you know, towel yourself off. Yeah. yeah. So, no, I, I like it all. I like Crawford Notch uh, Campground, too. I like that. Uh, Dry River, I mean. Dry River is a nice spot. Yeah. Um, a little more remote uh, than uh, than Lafayette. But, no, it's all good. There's just so many great spots. I just, that, you know, literally, my parents loved New Hampshire. And, you know, we're from Brooklyn. My parents used to view New Hampshire as uh, kind of like going to Austria, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we camped there a couple times a year since a little, since many years ago. And it's 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 my go-to place still. Yeah. And I need to start doing a little. It makes me think about, like, your, your, your point about just kicking around Lonesome Lake. Like, I always think about, like, how cool it would be just to hike up to Lonesome Lake with a book and just throw my hammock yeah. up on uh, beside the lake and just chill out for the day. 
It's a great spot. And I, I, you know, I, I even love it in the winter. There's oh, yeah. n- for, you know, that, that hut is open all year and you just, you got to carry your food and stuff and it's, it gives you a little break, but there's nothing better than walking across that lake in the middle oh, of the winter. Oh, it's so cool. You know, it's just it's really cool. And it doesn't eat up your day. It's like you can do the hike and then you're out and then you can do something else without it killing your whole Sunday. It's awesome. Yep. 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 Yeah, yeah. Yep. Actually, I have a good story about Lonesome Lake. So we did, my friend Jonathan and my friend Tom, who I talk about a lot, we did an overnight. So we did. We ended up doing the Kinsmans, and then our plan was to hike Cannon the next morning, but we got hit by a blizzard. Uh, so we we didn't stay in the, the hut, but we, we camped along Lonesome Lake. There's some tent sites on the other side, and um, we were, we decided not to go to Cannon because of the, the storm coming in. So we were breaking up camp, and then we look over across Lonesome Lake, and there's like the line of the Boy Scouts, you know, the Boy Scouts stay at the the hut. It was like 25 of them. And we were just like, we cannot get stuck behind them. We have to hurry up and break camp down and get out in front of them. So, so usually Lonesome Lake is good, but if there's 25 Boy Scouts coming across it, you got to run. <laughs> it's popular for that. Yeah. Lately, the weekends in any of those accessible spots are a little crowded, but uh, yeah, you gotta, you gotta pick your times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. So Martin, next question I had for you was, uh, we talked about this a little bit in the beginning of the show, but with me turning 50, like people turn 60, they turn 70, they turn 80 milestones. What is your advice on handling and, and facing milestones? Do we ignore them? Do we embrace it? What, what do you, what do you think? I say embrace it. In fact, that's the word I wrote on my notes here. Embrace it. Um, I'm embracing being 65. You know, they advise you not to admit your age when you get above 55 <laughs> uh, in, in corporate world. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm I'm proud of the fact that I'm uh, 65. I got all this experience and I'm still fit and active. I still have most of my faculties. I have all my knees. My, I have original knees and hips. I'm not uh, 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 bionic in any way, shape or form. And I think I think we're right at a place where the way we're defining aging is has got to change. It's evolving because here's the thing. Half of the adult population is above age 50. That's number one. Number two, the amount, the fastest part of the population growth is coming from people above 80, 90, and 100. And those numbers are going to continue to increase as both fitness and diet and medical abilities and surgery can prolong lives. So we better figure out as a culture as, a, as a, how, to, how to live with an older population Interesting. I just tracked this number down. I'll read it to you. The highly respected World Health Organization has just redefined aging. And now 18 to 65 is considered young, according to the World Health Organization. Mm. 66 to 79 is considered middle age. 80 to 99 is elderly and 100 plus is considered long lived elderly. So everyone is struggling even the World Health Organization, for how to redefine aging. And I say embrace it. I, you know, um, typically 50 is a turning point, Mike, and good, good luck to you tomorrow. Um, but um, I, 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 these are interesting milestones. There's others as well. So, you know, Empty Nest is a, possibly a bigger That's milestone. That's coming up soon, too. Yeah. And then uh, 60 is a milestone and, you know, each decade becomes a milestone. But I, I say embrace it. As long as you stay fit, um, you don't feel old. I still feel like I have the the mind of a 40-year-old. So I, I'm not too worried about years. Um, and the whole nature of the book is embrace it and and uh, live with it and, and be as good as you can be at, the, at, at those at, at your advanced ages. Um, I got some friends who are working at age 80 and I know some people in the book hiking at 80 plus 
Um, so, um, you know, the, the genesis of the book really was something I saw when I was about 35 on Mount Washington. I was uh, coming down from the rock pile at somewhere near Lionhead, and I saw this guy running at me, literally, you know, trail running. This is like, I don't know, late 80s. And uh, he came up to me, and he was he told me he was 75 years old. I couldn't, I'd never seen a 75-year-old guy super fit like that running up Mount Washington. And it got me, it really blew my mind. It stayed with me. And uh, that is really what, if I had to think about a seminal moment of what convinced me that hiking is a fountain of youth, that is it. Yeah. So keep walking uphill. Nice. So Stomp, you, um, me and you, we've talked about this before in the past, but like, I feel like we both had like health resets in the past. Like I, I was like heavy when I was about 30. I don't know how my, my youngest daughter i was a little bit heavy and i got back into shape and i've been pretty consistent since but and you've had a few up and downs as far as weight and i think the hip thing definitely as much as you sort of played it down i think that that hit pretty hard for you to get back into shape but do you think stomp like do you do you feel like you are in good shape again at this point or are you trying to get reset back into your your fighting weight again i'm yeah i'm trying to fight back to where I was before this hip really was a problem. But uh, the only thing I'm missing right now is just a little bit of cardio. I, th- I've, I feel great. I mean, um, occasionally my hip gives me some quirky pain here and there, but uh, I, you know, I'm cranking it out. I'm doing what I want to do. I'm actually a little bit tempted to try a little bit of light, like bird step running again. Um, yeah, I feel really good. Did you get a replacement hip? I did. I had um, congenital hip dysplasia. So, it bit me after my last Mount Washington road race, and that was in my mid-40s. That's when they discovered that I actually had the condition. And um, both hips have been uh, operated on. My left hip is original, and the doctor that just did my right hip for a hip replacement says I have another five to seven years on it, which is fantastic news. So, yeah, that was a, t- oh, talk about a monkey wrench. I mean, I had just run the Mount Washington road race, and then boom. dead stop i just i got i remember the run it was around winnikenny lake in haverhill get back in my car my my hip locked at 90 degrees i couldn't move it and that was the beginning of the end for the my left uh just crazy crazy so to overcome that mentally and then physically uh has been very eye-opening and and it gives you a hell of a lot of empathy for people with hip replacements and things like that uh, especially in my line of work as a physical therapist. Like I, I just look at these people a little differently now. Well, you know, you, you can recover from that. I, I take some inspiration from my, my younger brother um, has two artificial hips and two artificial knees. And it took him five years wow. to get yeah. through that. And now he's hiking again. I, he literally is hiking again and uh, feels pretty good. And if you can recover from all bionic joints in your legs, yeah. wow, you know, so... So good for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. And Martin, one thing I did want to ask you was, um, you you have this discussion in your book around hamster wheel, um, and you know I definitely feel like I'm on it. Like I'm, especially COVID's been great, and I'm working remote now, and I don't have to go into Cambridge every day. You know, it's an hour and a half drive home at night sometimes when I used to work in Cambridge. But in some respects, it's difficult because I wake up in the morning, I go running, and then I am down in my basement working for eight, nine hours, I'll get up and move around a little bit. I've got a stand-up desk now, which is helpful, but um, I'm definitely feeling sort of like this, like stuck in a routine. The sa- Every day is the same and stomp. I think you get around a little bit more than I do, but you know, we both talked about this. Like we're still like, we're grinding to make money, support the family, all that fun stuff. And 
it's just like it it makes it very difficult to to stay motivated to keep moving so do you have any advice for people that are feeling that way especially like even we've got a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel we're getting older but like younger people like i can't imagine like i couldn't go back to like 30 at this point i think in this new era post-covid um i think even young people are starting to think maybe the hamster wheel isn't the right life you know um, now people can work at home. That takes some of the strain off the hamster wheel. But, you know, I've been, I've been there numerous times. In fact, I, I will tell you, uh, 2021 for me was a complete hamster wheel. And uh, in January, I think I might have told you, I kind of uh, decided I was taking some time off. I've stepped down from one of my roles and um, I'm doing a reset. I'm doing a total digital detox and, and uh, I work about half of what I worked three months ago. Um, so, yeah, I think you have to take a careful measure of your your psyche and your physical abilities and just your goals and what you want to do and and maybe reassess uh, if you're feeling that way. Um, I, throughout my career, had a penchant for taking either sabbaticals or getting a, uh, a break from work or quitting a job and going on a climbing expedition. I, you know, I went to Antarctica between jobs. I went to uh, Nepal between jobs. I mean, so um, that's always what's done it for me is really doing something drastic and getting away and then doing a reset. Um, so, yeah, I, if you're in tune, if you're feeling that way, yeah, take some vacation. Can you get a sabbatical? Change jobs? Do something drastic. Um, you just can't, you can't do it. You'll burn out. You, you, burning out is not good. And um, I, I think that there's alternatives to that now. I think a lot of people have come to the realization that uh, – if you give up half your life for your, well, more than half your life, 90% of your life in some cases for that career pursuit, that that blind pursuit of the dollar or the next promotion, maybe it's not the life you want. So Trailer tramp. Give it give it some thought. Like you, Mike, you, yeah. and, you and Mrs. Mike are going to go trailer tramp around the world for. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't get her to buy into that. She would, she would want to be the luxury hotel tramp. <laughs> Uh, that's not a bad so, idea either. I mean, geez. Yeah, exactly. So, well, that's a good point. But um, so, Martin, I guess I did want to move on to some of the because I, I guess that dovetails into a little bit of what like what I was thinking about is like I'd love to get like a sabbatical or be able to do one of these. I think one of my personal dreams and we'll talk about like France a little bit is I would love to go and follow like the Tour de France for like two weeks and do some of these large climbs when they do the mountain stages like Mont Ventoux or whatever. Um, So I was interested. I was like sort of we were going back and forth about certain topics to cover and I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the the large mountaineering expeditions that you've been on. Um, You know, we talked last week with Cheswick and I think we talked about this with you as well as that previously like you've done like the the trek to base camp in Nepal and um, we've talked about I think some other um, some other big mountains with Jeff our friend Jeff Rogers Mount Fuji and, and some other things that he's done in Alaska but I wanted to just revisit some of the big expeditions you've done because you don't really ha- you know you're, you're kind of humble about it but like you've done some awesome mountaineering stuff with like um, you know Mont, Mont Blanc you've done Antarctica you've done the Matterhorn um, and you've done a, a few other large ones that I can't even remember at this point, I think in South America. So can you talk a little bit about some of those, those big expeditions? And, um, in particular, I think we want to start about Mont Blanc. Yeah. Well, Mont Blanc, you know, I had a, 
I used to travel to Europe for uh, for business, so I kind of Europe was very accessible to me. And I'm also a, a big reader, and I fell in love with the history of mountaineering. The history of mountaineering starts on Mont Blanc, and it centers around Chamonix and Zermatt. So the Matterhorn and Mont Blanc became kind of like something I did a lot. I've done each of them five times, but and been in both of those places um, many, many times because they're just great mountain towns, and they're historic, and they're scenic, and they're great places to escape. Um, but Mont Blanc has a particularly uh, unique place in mountaineering. It's 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 like really where the sport began. Chamonix is a special mountain mountain town. Um, it hosted, I think, the '52 Olympics. So it has all the winter sports. It's got some incredible skiing. It's got rock climbing. But of course, Mont Blanc from the Chamonix side is. Uh, it's not a particularly difficult climb. It doesn't even qualify as an expedition. It's a three-day thing at most. You know, it's a day up to the hut, hut to the summit and back to the hut the next day and then back down the next day. Some people do it in two days. I think it's been done round trip in one day by some speed demons. So it doesn't really qualify as an expedition, but it feels like a monstrous mountain. It's a big, beautiful, complex mountain. Many ways to get up it. Many guide services. Uh, it's It's... It can be crowded, um, but it also can be pristinely beautiful. And uh, to me, the, the summit of Mont Blanc is one of the greatest summits because it's so much higher than everything around it. It feels like Mount Everest, actually. You just can see all across Europe in every direction. And uh, it's a special place. And, you know, the funny thing is you mentioned the wingsuit. The first time I got to the top of Mont Blanc, being France, um, and this is, uh, I think it was 1987 was the first time, um, it was the era of the hang glider. The, the, and yeah. um, at the time, in Chamonix, you'd look up at any point in time and see 20 hang gliders up in the sky. And there was usually like one death a week for someone crashing into the c- cement in, in Chamonix. But literally got to the top after you know two days to get up there, 5,000 feet vertical feet per day, to only to see some guy literally jump off the summit in a hang glider. And we watched him. <laughs> circling 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 15 minutes later you could see him land in chamonix and i'm thinking <laughs> i got two days to go he's, he's having a beer <laughs> you know? it's a short way but it was uh, it, my, a total mind expansion seeing someone jump off the top of mount blanc and hang glider and watch him all the way down amazing but you can't do it in a wingsuit because it's not steep enough wow wow now um would you say that like how would you compare that to the matterhorn it's a gentler climb. Matterhorn is mostly rock. It's a you know it's a slag pile of uh, fragmenting rock. It's got some snow on it, but Mont Blanc is a snow climb. Mont Blanc is uh, uh, glaciers, crevasses, um, undulating ridges. Yeah, it's a beautiful climb. I mean, you feel like you're on a really big mountain. It's a gorgeous mountain. Yeah. Is it restricted by season? Like, do you have to do it during a certain period, or is it like... No, I, I think you can do it year-round. Um, guide services will take you up. There's a lot of guides in Chamonix, a lot of guides. Um, and they're always looking for, for clients. And uh, so, yeah, you can find someone to take you up any time of the year. Um, you don't even really need a guide if you know what you're doing. I mean, it's 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 the, the routes are fairly well-known. The, there's huts that take off you know, the edge serving great meals. Those high alpine huts are incredible. You think uh, what we have in the whites is, uh, is elaborate, but uh, the, the high mountain huts in the Alps are unbelievable. Unbelievable. Does it require any experience with ropes or anything like that? Or is it just, yeah, it does. Because it's crevassed. 
um, the glaciers, you need to be pretty good at rope travel. Um, you definitely don't want to um, risk not doing it that way, although people have. Um, but no, you need to be roped up with a rope team and you need to be experienced enough so that you can self-arrest, do some crevasse rescue if you need to. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a serious mountain, even though it's only, you know, two days up. It's you quickly get into the alpine zone where you feel like you're, you know, you're in, uh, in the Himalaya in some ways. Do you, did you go by yourself or did you go with a group of friends? No, I went with four guys, um, four guys, and uh, we were all pretty experienced. One was an experienced guide, a friend of mine, who is actually a rainier guide named George Dunn. And uh, I kept going with George. He, he's an excellent guide. Um, I did it a couple of times with a, a French guide. But twice with George, and uh, he's now he's one of the principals of International Mountain Guides in Seattle. Okay, and uh, they're still you know they're, they're, I still recommend them to everybody who asks me where to start. They they go around the world. They're great. And did you so he guided you up there? Or did you use a local guide? No, George guided. I'd say guided us, but it guide not guided in a sense that uh, dragged us up the hill. He just basically had done it before, and it's always good. At least, unless you're a full-time mountaineer. Um, and so it's always good to have someone who's done it before. Can we show you the ropes? Mm -hmm. And it uh, makes it a lot easier. It eliminates a lot of the risk and a lot of the planning concerns. Um, so, yeah, um, great, great experience. And when you get to the when you get to the hut, do you, like, leave some gear at the hut that you don't need for the summit? Or do you just do you take everything with you? Um, the huts supply blankets so you don't have to carry a sleeping bag you don't have to carry a tent you don't have to carry food other than what you're going to eat on the on the on the climb so you don't have to carry your meals so basically no you don't leave anything in the hut you uh you bring your climbing gear and then the hut supplies everything else so it does it allows you to care, go a little lighter than you would otherwise though yeah absolutely yeah it's, and that's why it's not really an expedition it's a it's a it's a climb um uh, you know the downside of the huts obviously they're crowded uh, they're sweaty, and uh, there's always going to be three people in any one big bunk room that's snoring, you know. So it's uh, it's got its pluses, it's got its minuses. Um, but you know, the food is great, um, the settings are great. Usually, you meet interesting people, and uh, yeah, it's, it's it's outstanding. The European hut system is outstanding. Yeah. What about language? I'm always nervous about like the idea of going to like a place where I don't speak the local language and I'm going to like, look like the, the dumb tourist. Like, did you, any issues there? Do you speak the language? Uh, I speak 10, 10 words in every language. Okay, perfect. That's usually, you know, hello, how you doing? Where's the bathroom? Usually <laughs> not. And by the way, most, most places you're, you're going to go, they speak English well enough so that you can get yeah. by. And as long as you're not, you know, an asshole American, they'll, they, you're accepted anywhere. I mean, there's, there's obviously the big dumb, boisterous people who don't get accepted anywhere but i've never had any problems i i love traveling internationally i've never had any of that uh, uh you're not wanted here kind of stuff uh and you know the climbing community tends to be pretty welcoming yeah um yeah as long as you you know treat them fair be friendly and you can go mm -hmm. anywhere cool. stomp when you did your backpacking in europe did you did you get get over by uh this area at all i went to this uh, let's see i went to the austrian alps and then I, from there, I just booked it straight down to uh, Mykonos and uh, spent some time in the islands. But uh, yeah, man, Austria just blew me away. It was incredible. Absolutely incredible. Salzburg, Innsbruck, beautiful. But he's right. It's like you can get by. I mean, I spent a month and a half just jumping around trains, 
with basically a traveler's vocabulary, you know, just a handful of words, even in Greece and the islands, just, some, you know, you learn it quick and you use it. The beer rudimentary minimum you can get by. No, Martin, I'm curious. So, so Mont Blanc, I, again, I go back to like, I'm, I'm a big European cyclist, um, cycling fan. So I watch like the, the, the Volta and the, uh, uh, the Tour de France and, in the Giro every year. Um, but, and I see some of those, like my, my idea is that when I go, I want to go and like watch some of the tour stages, but I want to be able to climb like Von two and some of these other mountains. Have you been around any of the other, other large well-known peaks in, in France? No, no, you haven't done just Mont Blanc. Mont Blanc. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of been Mecca for me. I mean, I know Fran, I, I know other places in France, but no, as far as mountaineering goes, it's only Mont Blanc for me there. Okay. Um, I mean, but I hung around in Chamonix quite a bit, and the other side of the valley is a great skier. It's going to come to me in a second what it was called, but uh, this, you know, it's also a giant ski town, um, and you can ski on the Mont Blanc side too. Um, really, some uh, some really impressive verticals and some impressive scenery. Mm-hmm. So skiing is there. I, I I think that doesn't the Tour de France go right through Chamonix? I think it, it does. Is. Yeah, yeah. Usually it will. So, yeah. but I'll do a little bit of research, and I think that uh, Mont Blanc definitely sounds like a place that that seems reasonable. But I would recommend Chamonix. It's just such a vibrant town. It can get crowded. You know, August is everybody's on vacation there, but it's really kind of cool. Yeah, it's a really cool place. Awesome. Well, we wanted to move on next. The next one we had on your list is we talked a little bit about Antarctica, but we I don't think we did a deep dive on this. So I think me and Stone are both curious about about this so i think starting with logistics like how do you get there do you fly in or do you take a like a ship from like argentina or what what, what, what no no, no there's no boat boat is not only slow but it only gets you to the coast and the mountains are in the interior so um my exact flight route was jfk to miami miami to santiago chile santiago to punta arenas Chile, which is right down at the tip, and then Punta Arenas to the central part of Antarctica, a place called Patriot Hills, which is an ice strip airfield. They've now moved it to a place called Union Glacier. It's also a black ice strip. You land on the black ice, and then you take a bunch of little planes called the Twin Otters to the mountains, another two or three hour flight from uh, the ice strip. So you're getting pretty far down near the South Pole, and it's... Uh, all planes and the logistics are complicated and crazy expensive. I can imagine. So, yeah, I just, you know, I just checked because I thought you were going to ask me about costs and everything. Um, IMG is charging $43,000 to be part of their next ex- expedition. And that doesn't include something. I don't know. Anyway, it's expensive. It's really expensive. It's almost as expensive as climbing Mount Everest now to get to Antarctica. It's a special place. It's um, it's still in me. I, I think about it often, and sometimes the sound will remind me of it. Or sometimes, uh, you know, like when it's that cold, um, snow takes on weird proportions. Snow and ice, weird uh, uh, characteristics. It squeaks sometimes when you talk, and, and sometimes I'll hear that squeak when it's really cold here in the Northeast. And I'll be right back in Antarctica. It's amazing. It's uh, it's such, it's such an overwhelming sensory experience, uh, and of course the sun doesn't ever go down, so it's light all the time. And you're just so overwhelmed with uh, with inputs, and you have to plan it out pretty carefully because you could you could uh, you, know, you get killed there. It's easy to it's easy to disappear in Antarctica, and so you have to be uber prepared and experienced and confident and um, with good people. So obviously, like, there's a huge cost to this. Because I'm assuming most of the cost is because you've got to get all of your 
equipment and food and, and all that logistical stuff set up. So when you fly in, like how close are you? What, what's the name of the peak that you hiked? Vincent Massive. Vincent, it's at Mount Vincent. It's Mount the tallest peak in Antarctica. It's one of the seven summits. It's like almost 17,000 feet, 16.7. Got it. And then how close are you when you land? Like how, how like from a distance, how many miles away are you from, from um, Vincent? Well, you're right at the base okay. um, on, a, on a glacier. And uh, I would say from base camp to the summit is maybe... 12 miles maybe and it takes four days to get up through three different camps um but you know that that's if the weather's perfect and usually you get a snow day or a wind day where you have to lay in camp it's it's it was about a three-week expedition being on the ice for three weeks and then we had to wait another week for the plane to come pick us up so about a month on the ice and that's it's really great you know i did it i think it was 1992 um but uh, it's much easier, not easier now, logistically easier, because we used to, we had propeller planes. Now there's a jet that gets you right down to Union Glacier. It's warmer. The They've actually built up a semi-permanent base camp of, of uh, little hut-like tents, um, Quonset hut type stuff. Um, when we did it, um, it was really uh, primitive. In fact, I it had barely been climbed. I think I'm going to get the number close. I think I was the 123rd person ever to get up to the top of that mountain. And that was in 1993. It had only been climbed, you know, for the first time. I think it was 1967 was the first time anybody got there and got to the top. So it was really rare. And um, it was really special because we did it uh, one week after Reinhold Messner had been there. Oh, wow. And Messner, we crossed paths with him, a couple of, a couple of famous people. Messner was raving about how he thought it was a better view from the top of Mount Vincent than the top of Mount Everest. I'll take his word for it. It was pretty amazing. You know, white as far as the eye could see. There was nothing but ice, nothing but ice. What's on the peak? Is there any markers or anything? Anybody leave anything on the peak? No, the, it, Antarctica is one of those places where you try to keep it pristine. I, I literally at the summit, there was a ski pole stuck in there just to mark the top. Not yeah. that you'd miss it, but... Um, <laughs> No, it's very pristine. It's, it's carry in, carry out. You know, um, you try to keep that place as clean as possible because it'll never decompose. Nothing will ever decompose there. It's, uh, you know, it's always below zero. Wow. And then it's and it's 16,000 feet. So you do have to worry about altitude sickness there. No, just a little bit. Yeah. Um, usually you're sleeping at about 12,000 the night before the final push. That's borderline altitude sickness and you're usually fit enough and, and acclimated enough where I didn't think about it for one second to tell the truth. Mike. Okay. Um, anything under you know, 20,000 feet is usually uh, you acclimate pretty fast. And, uh, and if you're fit and you're taking your time, you're, you're okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, we never thought about altitude at all. Got it. The interesting thing about uh, um, being at the pole is uh, because the earth spins, believe it or not, uh, there's less, oxygen at 16,000 feet at the pole than there is at the equator because of the spinning, the Coriolis effect, I guess, sucks the air out towards the poles. So it's, there's less air there. And even with that, we didn't notice it. It was just kind of a, uh, I guess, a geographic anomaly that they, that they told us about after the fact. We didn't notice it. And are you roped up on, on this hike or is this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, there's, it's, it's all glacier. There's not a speck of anything that isn't ice. And, uh, and it doesn't snow much in Antarctica, so it's all ice. And, uh, and moving 
glacier and as a result uh, it has crevasses and you don't always see where they are so you've got to be roped up all the time now how does that work because i haven't been like i've never done anything with ropes like does that are people going up ahead of time and setting ropes or are you just all roped no, up together not fixed ropes. no it's not fixed ropes on vincent i think now someone told me they did put a fixed rope in to one spot that is a little dangerous but no you're rope teams you're all roped together you're not climbing a rope you're not pulling yourself up you're roped together so that in the event one person falls into a crevasse he's attached to other people who will stop the fall and be able to rescue him it's rope team travel it's the way mountaineering used to be it's not that way on everest anymore you know everybody's clipped into a fixed rope but it's 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 actually it's one of the things i like the most about it and that's the way it is like if you climb right near you learn rope team technique there's no fixed ropes. You're learning how to move as a team with a rope. That's mountaineering to me. What's happening on Mount Everest, which is pulling yourself up a fixed fixed line, eh, you don't even need an ice axe or, or any technique anymore. You just pull yourself up a rope. Mount, Mount Vincent, Mount Planck, Mount Rainier, the Matterhorn, you need mountaineering technique. And that's really what was the most appealing thing to me is it was, uh, I, I think it's a beautiful sport, you know? Well, so... Uh, another qu question I have is like, so if me and Stomp went to Antarctica and then I couldn't make it, something happened, I trip and I fall, I fall into a crevice or whatever if I die. Like this isn't like Mount Everest where you're leaving people on there. Like Stomp would have to drag my body back down to to fly out, right? They don't just like, you, did you have an agreement with like your crew to say like if something goes wrong, like we're going to get your body back or are you just like, you know, we can't guarantee what's going to happen. Stomp, you would bring my body back, right? Possibly. <laughs> never even thought of it, to tell the truth. Really? So you never never thought that 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 way, Martin? No, you know, it, listen, if you fell into a crevasse and disappeared, you, you're there for the rest of eternity. Um, no one's going to rescue you. It's, it's just too hard in, in, in the mountains, and it's, it's, it's practically impossible. And that's not quite as ruthless as Everest, it's not that it's not nearly in the same degree of danger. You're not at eight thousand meters, which changes the game completely because you know your 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 body is dying at eight thousand meters. So um, you're not that high. Still, it would be hard to rescue someone. I'm not sure if there's ever been a fatality there to deal with that. I would I'm going to have to look that up. It's it's blowing my mind that I don't know that. I don't think there has been. Usually, if you go there, you're pretty. Uh, accomplished and you're not you're not uh, you're not going to take any stupid risks and truthfully it, it isn't that dangerous you have to take take caution because it is a glacier it's it's remote it's 30 below zero most of the time so you have to not take care of yourself but that aside it's not like there's an ice fall like everest where it's collapsing all the time and it's not like you can uh, there's sheer precipices where you're going to fall 5,000 feet um, it's a long uphill walk in the snow, you know? Got it. <laughs> so there's your answer. If you if you fall right. into a crevasse, catch you later, buddy. Stomp. <laughs> get down there and get me out of there. <laughs> I'll go get help. Well, yeah, yeah, you probably, yeah. probably can get a contract or make an agreement or, or, or bring along a, a guide to, to you. If you want to pay somebody extra to recover your body, sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's my next question then is like these, so these bigger expeditions are even like, you know, if you're doing like Mount Rainier or whatever, like uh, selecting a guide, getting into the whole guide services thing. You talk, you sort of answered the question already, but like you, you already like sounds like you're connected to a pretty good guide. But like, what are some things? 
things to look at, look for, and then what are some red flags that you want to look out for when you when you're talking to these? Well, I think it's a matter of it's a matter of experience. Um, you know, um, like if you're talking about Rainier, if you stick with the two main guide services, there they're very well trained, very experienced. Uh, it's it's a factory getting people sometimes even newbies up Mount Rainier. Um, so, it, it, you know, at Rainier, you want to go with Rainier Mountaineering or International Mountain Guides. I think there may be another service up there, but if they're if they're licensed to operate on Rainier, they're good. I wouldn't hire a one-of kind of guide anywhere because they don't have the resources to uh, to be insured, to, to, to be sure they're, um, to be sure they're competent. Um, and you got to use word of mouth and word of mouth with with uh, sole proprietor guides. Eh, it's hit or miss, I think. So, it, you know, it, it again, it depends. If you're in Chamonix, um, most of those guys have pretty clear climbing resumes. Most of them that you'd hire have climbed Mont Blanc 300 times and it's uh, second nature. You want it's it's about experience. It's about experience. And uh, that's that's the key thing. So. What about, uh, and again, I don't know, maybe you've done most of these big, big expeditions like before technology was even an option, but as far as like personal locator beacons, satellite phones, all that stuff, was that, was that factored into any? Yeah, everybody, everybody carries that now. It's standard practice. You don't want to ever be without a satellite phone or a a beacon. Um, when we were at, uh, Vincent, he's even at 92, we had, um, a radio system set up at base camp. But when we were up ba- above base camp, you were out of touch, clearly out of touch. But uh, we could communicate from base camp with, with uh, Patriot Hills, who could then communicate with the rest of the world. And we actually had a guy on our trip who's, whose dad died, and he managed to get through, short, through radio in touch with his mother in, I think, California while we were in Antarctica, even back in 92. So, um, yeah, but I would never even, you know, I don't even hike the whites without a, GPS beacon, you know, I carry a spot device. You were talking about other devices, the inReach. Um, I would never do that, um, so at least for the very least, so your family knows where your carcass is located. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, so, yeah, but now nowadays, um, yeah, I think uh, it's pretty pretty commonplace to get on a satellite phone and talk to your family from from Mount Vincent Base Camp in Antarctica. If you had, um, if you were taking, if you were giving somebody advice about like a, a, a cool sort of adventurous trip that didn't involve like needing mountaineering experience, maybe it did involve needing a guide. Like, what would be one of your top recommendations? Kilimanjaro for sure. Kilimanjaro. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not a mountaineering. It's a big mountain. It's almost twenty thousand feet, but you're not roped up. It's basically Mount Washington on super steroids because it's twenty thousand feet tall. But and it takes six days to get up because it's really big. Um, and the longer you take, the better you'll acclimate. So it's better. But I, I that's a great uh, first big mountain experience because um, first of all, you've got um, a crew usually carries your stuff and does all the cooking. So you're carrying a mediocre, medium-sized pack. It's an incredible adventure. Um, and you're in an exotic place on a huge mountain, and it's a you know nice relaxing trip, and 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 just hard enough so you feel like you've accomplished something significant, and then you get to the top and you're looking out of all of Africa. I mean, it's it's amazing. Cool. All right, Stomp. Any questions for Martin? We've we've been talking about big big mountaineering stuff here. Yeah, one quick one. Have you ever experienced snow blindness? Minimal. Um, 
the beginnings of it. Fortunately, not anything worse than that. I you know, bad headaches, and you know you have to for a day or so. You feel like you got stuff floating around in your eyes, and yeah, it's just one of those things. I I think it might even have been Mont Blanc. I lost my sunglasses. Ah, there you go. And uh, when you're on a yeah, you're on a glacier, you know. You know, I'm thinking about it. Not at the same time. I also got the worst sunburn in my life because when you're on a glacier, um, not only do you have to protect from the sun coming up, but it reflects off the yeah. snow. So I forgot to cream up the bottom of my nose and the roof of my mouth and panting. I got sunburn in my nostrils and in my upper lip. Like I, <laughs> oh my god, it was the worst sunburn I ever had. So, um, but snow blindness and sunburn on the same on the same uh, the same event, but nothing super to complain about it was just a minimal snow blindness minimal interesting so it's basically uv rays just burning portions of your eye essentially so yeah Yeah. so what are you wearing goggles or those cool mountaineering glasses with the side shields (laughs) Uh, i've done all of that and i think what i lost was a pair of uh at the time what was the brand name it was real cool kind of a goggle thing that was kind of like all the triathletes are wearing at the time. It'll come to me in a second what the brand name was. We really cool. They're super expensive. And I, and I lost them on Mont Blanc. Huh. And they look really good in the pictures too, because they were reflective and orangey and they're just so cool. Um, you know, very French. Like, like uh, Riddick with Vin Diesel or something. I, what I should have had, I should have had goggles on with the band, but no, they're like sunglass things, you know? Cool. So yeah, you live and learn. Excellent. Awesome. So, Martin, you want to uh, talk a little bit about the book, want to plug the book and and talk about the new chapters? Yeah, thanks, Mike. So, you know, the book is pretty much a combination of fitness, hiking, my adventures, and the adventures of uh, a lot of people I talk to rolled into a why should I be hiking and why is hiking the fountain of youth? Now, again, I I mentioned I wrote it uh, just as COVID started, and so I didn't think it got a fair shot. I didn't get to do the speaking. I didn't think, didn't get to do the bookstore intros and all that stuff. And I want to do that again. So I've decided to write um, version number two. I'm hoping that it'll be done later in the summer. And I've added a few chapters that for some reason my editors wanted extracted last time. But the two chapters are on uh, nutrition and hydration, which are important parts of this whole thing. And uh, And then I've got some better stories. I'm interviewing uh, some different people. And uh, I think hiker story is an important part of it. It gives, I think, the reader the feeling that this isn't an elite sport. This is an accessible sport. And there's just so many great stories about people who have used hiking to reinvent their lives. And if they can do it, so can you. And that's what I'm trying to do is encourage more people to uh, to see the joys of this and, and the benefits. And uh, and if I can, if I can somehow do that because of my experience and my story, that, that's that's what we're doing. So we're going to do this second version. Um, I'm looking for sponsors, actually, meaning like I, because I had REI set up to do speeches. I, perfect world for me is to get REI to sponsor book too, boy, or EMS or somebody. I'm gonna I'm gonna start doing that soon because I'm getting close to finishing the writing part. And I would love to have some kind of a relationship with a, with a hiking company, boot company, you know. And so I'm, I'm working on that. But I think this book, this this version will be a little bit better. Um, I, I like what I wrote. I thought the production values were mediocre. Um, I, I want to do more color pictures and, uh, and just make it more appealing to a broader audience. So I thought... This is a good time to do it. Hmm. Yeah, well, I definitely like it. It's called Secrets of Aging Well. Get outside. 
Martin Pisani, and you can get this. I'll, I'll include in the show notes a couple of ways that you can you can get the book if you're interested. But I think every Thanks. hiker should be should be checking this out. And you know, the big thing that I always say about this and the epiphany that I had was that you know you want to look at the long game. Like I know a lot of people are driven and they want to. Um, oh, sorry, I have a, a FaceTime thing going on. Um, a lot of people are very driven and they want to like kill it out there in, in the hiking world. But like you got to balance it out with like the long term vision here. And I think that your book really sort of gives a good good perspective on how to balance those two those two competing interests. Great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And it's good that you're doing a hydration chapter because Stomp has a whole section here that he's going to cover about water filters and purification. Yeah, I saw that. Really cool. Yeah, just in time for the spring and summer, and I thought it might be nice following up uh, with our buddies here, Pauzy on the PCT and Chez doing his 7,000-mile trek. Holy moly. Are you ready for Slasher's Weekly Gear Review? What do we have? We have filtering versus water purification basically filters remove dirt grime fish shit if you want to be crude and uh some smaller microorganisms like giardia which is pretty nasty it's a parasite that causes diarrhea generally filters are not going to be stopping viruses i mean around here in the whites filters will do the trick for you and within filters you have personal water filters straws and squeezes all this stuff is absolutely more beneficial than your purification tabs in the whites, I would say. What do you guys think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, my whole philosophy on this is like I, I carry a filter and, you know, I try to carry as little water as possible. And I try to do some research to make sure that I've got, wa- you know, water access when I'm doing hikes. And sometimes I screw it up. But yeah, you know, I definitely carry a, uh, a filter. I don't do anything else other than just run it through the filter, though. And sometimes I don't even do the filter if I'm really thirsty. But <laughs> So purifiers on the other end of the spectrum, I mean, they kill microorganisms and basically you're looking at chemical tablets, UV light, which is pretty amazing. Uh, As for chemical treatments, it's probably just emergency only. If you're really in a bad situation, just stick them in your first aid pack so you have them just in case. And they kill protozoa, bacteria, viruses, and other harmful chemicals. So personal preference, I don't personally use filtering um, in the whites. I, like you said, Mike, I plan ahead. I have been in the habit for ages now of just carrying the water. Um, If you're the type of person that wants to use a filter or does use a filter, like Mike said, just making sure that water is available on your route and uh, be prepared. There are several methods of filtering and purification. So basically we have boiling, you've got the tablets, UV light, pump filters, gravity water filters. How do you use these and what are they best for? Boiling is going to kill everything, which is great. But that entails carrying a stove, you know, propane, things like that. So you're going to be adding weight to your pack. When would you want to use it? I would guess probably backpacking. Uh, overnight trips, that type of thing, or in the winter if you want to make water or heat up water for your Nalgene's, which are really handy when it's sub-zero. <laughs> and sticking those Nalgene's in your sleeping bag can be really great. Tablets, again, like I said, it's not going to filter your water. Um, it's time-consuming. Some of these tablets will take 30 minutes to even upwards of four hours to impact the water. 
what's great about it is no weight. It's not going to take up any space in your pack or anything like that. Again, best for emergency situations. And uh, doing some research, it was really interesting. So you have chlorine dioxide tablets, chlorine, you know, the same old pool formula that all of us grew up with. And then there's iodine, which apparently doesn't kill cryptosporidium. Anybody know what that is? <laughs> I just know that I don't want it. <laughs> yeah, you don't. You don't want it. Uh, let's see, UV light. This is this is fairly new to the market, I would think, right? Yeah, I, I have no experience with it. I've seen it around. I uh, haven't heard much about it. I- yeah, it's pretty interesting. So here's the deal with UV light. It takes batteries. So you have the pros, you have rechargeable batteries. You can treat like uh, three to eight thousand liters per battery charge uh the bad news is it will kill the microorganisms but may not catch that little fish stuff or dirt or silt um i mean most of these places that i research recommend that you're using this for international travel and stuff like that it's not very practical for day hikes and would be over the top now everybody that we know around here uses the pump filters uh personal filters you know like the uh the sawyer mini and things like that pros Cost-effective, super lightweight. You have systems that adapt to different water bottles and things like that. The cons, in my opinion, I've run into trouble with the, the filtering process where you have to you know, backflow like the mini and things like that. And it's a lot of exertion. So that's one negative to these uh, mechanisms. Um, and the other thing, they, don't, they won't get rid of microorganisms smaller than 0.2. Uh, microns. So viruses are not going to be eliminated, which I don't think is a, a major concern, but uh, just so you know. What are they best for? Uh, day hiking, I would say. Yeah, hmm? I, I honestly, like, I went back and forth on a bunch of um, water filtering in the whites over time. Like, me and my friend Tom, like, we go hiking, and like, originally we were like, all right, well, let's bring one filter. We'll bring like a gravity or a pump filter that we can both use. And what I quickly found was that, you know, I brought my Sawyer Mini as a backup and I had just a smart water bottle. And I was like, why are we killing ourselves with this like whole pump situation and like the gravity feed and it takes so long and it's a lot heavier. And for me, like if you're going to be doing day hiking or even like a weekend overnight situation, like to me, the, the best system that I found is the smart water bottles with the Sawyer Mini just just on top of it or the regular Sawyer, depending on what your, your preference is. And just I scoop out that water in the in the water source into the smart water bottle. I screw on the the, the Sawyer Mini and then I just put that in my front pocket and then I got, you know, a liter of water ready to go and then I just refill up on the next water source. Right. So that's mostly what I've been doing. Yeah, so speaking of uh, the water, the gravity water filters, the pros, you can take care of large volume for bigger groups. Cons, heavier weight. Uh, again, pack space. The top picks, I mean, for backpacking, the suggestions would be the Platypus Gravity Works, which is about 89 uh, backcountry, 75 on Amazon. The Katahdin B-Free Gravity, which can hold six liters. And the Katahdin hiking. So for individual use or day hikes, everybody's seen this. The Sawyer Mini, it's about 30 bucks or so. It's super light, uh, removes giardia and uh, waterborne bacteria and debris. And I like these. I, I know some folks that use these. The Life Straws, personal water filter, they're like 14 bucks. Can't beat it. 
and the Sawyer Squeeze, which is sort of what turned me off of all these uh, filters. Uh, I don't know. A little bit of uh, work to get those things to work. And then here's a new one. MSR Trail Shot Pocket. It's like 54 bucks. It looks ideal for ultra runners and people that are looking to pack light. So... Um, as for purifiers, there's the Camelback water purifier. You can look at that. That's a UV. And um, for best flow rate, they suggest the Katahdin B-Free. And uh, that's one of those water filter bottle systems for 45 bucks. Yeah, yeah. I think my sister-in-law uses those. So um, and I don't know how long the filters last for, but I think the filters just screw into the top of the water bottle and you can swap them out if you need to. But yeah. Um, you know, the big thing about these, all these, all these is like you have to get down, you know, having some knowledge of the trail systems is great because if you know where the water sources are, you can really just like start with no, almost no water. And my goal whenever I do these hikes is I like to start with half a liter and then have a liter bottle with me, finish that half a liter by the time I get to the first water source and then fill up from there and then you know, hopefully get to the next water source by the time I run out of the next liter so that I'm not carrying a lot of weight. You know, that's mostly how I handle most of the day hikes. And, you know, sometimes you can't do that depending on how long you're going or if it's like the northern presidentials and you don't have that option as much. But for the most part, I've been been able to mostly make it through day hikes for the majority of the 4,000 footers and the 52 with the views with like a liter or less of water carried um, at least in three seasons, not so much winter, but yeah that's the goal yeah now as for tablets um yeah i mean i can imagine an at um hiker using tablets in certain more you know suburban areas or city city stretches i'm I'm sure that might come in handy i'd be curious to know but uh you have a couple options you have png water purifier packs and uh Aqua Tabs and Aquamira, they range from like 13 bucks to about $24. And they kill 99.99% of bacteria and viruses. And then for those of you that are super duper paranoid about your water, the UV purifiers come at a cost. The Katahdin SteriPen Ultra is 130 bucks. And then there's the SteriPen Adventura OptiUV, which is 90 bucks. So again, this is a little stick, you stick it in your water, the light turns on and kills everything in the water. So pretty interesting stuff. Who would use those? I, like I said, super paranoid folks. I mean, if you're looking to kill yeah. the viruses and everything else that's possibly in the water, but for the most part around here, I think you're dealing with the, you know, the parasites that get into your intestines and you know, cause that kind of illness. Um, you know, perhaps like Ches was saying, looking up in the field and seeing the cows and dealing with fecal matter and things like that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I've yet to see. Martin, what did trail. you guys do in Antarctica for water? Did you have to just melt snow or did they, did they ship it in? Yeah, no, no, no. Um, there's ice everywhere, right? So you chip it, put it in a pot, turn it and melt it. It's all, it's all, you make it your own. That's it. Yeah. Um, and obviously it's pure because of that, because you're boiling it. Um, but you know, more, more, uh, Closer to home, I do use Aquatabs. Um, I I am a little paranoid about water. You know, um, in Nepal, I got really sick. I got H. pylori bacteria, and I uh, take antibiotics to get rid of it. And uh, yeah, fecal matter, and you just can't control it in some of the third world countries. It's it's really filthy. Even though we were boiling water and filtering it, 
uh, and occasionally putting some kind of a chlorine tab in there. We all still got H. pylori bacteria. It's just uh, so I'm I'm a little bit out of the country. I'm pretty paranoid about water hmm. here. You know, kind of like uh, I guess Stomp, you just said it. I don't. I sometimes will fill half a water bottle right out of a stream if I'm in a place that's lower traffic and not not worry too much about it. Um, I usually I do carry Aquatabs. Strangely enough. Um, I got in the habit of doing that years ago before all the filters came out. Came out, And uh, I don't like to taste it leaves. So I, what I'll do is I usually bring uh, something to flavor the water with after I've uh, used, the t- used the tabs. So, but um, yeah, I think, I think we're mostly okay if you, uh, here in New England, if, you, if you're careful about where you pick your yeah. water. Well, it's interesting. That, that's what they suggest, that the UV, UV would be more for international. And uh, perhaps that's the, the cure for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the standards are very different outside of the U.S. for water and, and food. So I'm, I'm more careful when I'm abroad. But here, I'm, I'm not too worried about it. I, although I did actually, strangely enough, get Giardia once, whitewater rafting in Maine. Huh. Oh, my God, that was – yeah, I jumped into the in, – I think it was the Dead River or the Penobscot. I can't remember what, in a wetsuit. Just had the raft tow me for a while. And then uh, two or three days later, I had the worst diarrhea of my life for about a week. Yeah, and it turned out to be Giardia. Wow. But, uh, yeah, go figure. Unreal. Uh, well, anyway. You know, well, let me give you one strategy. We're talking about hydration, something you don't think about, because you talk about how much water you want to carry. I, I tend to carry heavy on water. I, I, don't, I, use a, I run hot, so I like carrying water. don't want to worry about finding it. But here's a strategy most people don't think about. Prehydrate. Oh, sure. Bring an extra water bottle. Drink it in the car at the trailhead before you start. And that will take – you just be amazed at how that will stay with you. If you prehydrate, you're probably cutting, you're cutting the weeder out of what you're going to have to carry. And you're, you're, you're enhancing your, uh, your, the start of your hike. Also, keep a water bottle in the car so that when you're done, the moment you get to the car, you can rehydrate. Hmm. Um, just simple strategies like that. You don't have to carry it. Just keep it in the car. Yeah. And I'm so bad about that because usually what I'll do is like I'll, I'll like order like an extra large iced coffee and and drink that on the way and then i'm jacked up on caffeine but i feel like i for some reason i have it in my head that like coffee and caffeine like doesn't help with your hydration but I, maybe i'm wrong about that you know that's an argument that i've been having with people for years it does actually even though it's a diuretic okay. it's still water and it doesn't you it's not as good as water because it does have a diuretic effect but um it's it's not nothing so it does help but i you you can't beat guzzling a liter of water in the car on the way before you start okay well, I'll try to do that, uh, but it's just very difficult because I'm like always hiking in the morning, and I'm so tempted to get that giant iced coffee. But maybe <laughs> sure. I'll switch we'll it. Do up. both. Yeah, I'll do both. Do both. Yeah, it's <laughs> so, awesome. Stomp, you'll have to wait for me. I'll be peeing for the first mile or two. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I'm scared to move into this next segment, Stomp. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm afraid. Let's dive into some White Mountains history, shall we? Do you speak Abenaki, Martin? Wait, you said you have 10 words in each language. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to have to study up on nine of them now. Oh, um, but um, no, it's uh, it's new to me, and I love this debate. I can't wait to see when we change the name Mount Washington to whatever it's going to be called. Yes. Who can pronounce it correctly? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Do you know, um, this is a sidebar, but like the, um, I forget what it's called, the Geographic Names Database. Um, 
you know, they, I think it's Agio Cook or something like that. We'll talk about it, but yeah. there's like there's like 20 different names that have been applied to that mountain. So it's sure who the who the heck knows. But but continue yeah. stomp with your linguistics lesson that you're going to give us here. Yes, yes. Well, that's the d- disclaimer. We are not linguists here at Slasher. Everybody knows Clearly. that. <laughs> Clearly with our history of basic grammar in New England. But I had some time to kill this week, so I did some digging about the Apanaki tribe. And um, I just want to briefly talk about their history and then talk about the language because guess what? We've all had it wrong. It's, it's just to begin with, it's not Abenaki. Um, it's Apanaki. So that B is a P. So it's really fascinating. So let's just talk about this tribe. Who are they? Well, Apanaki basically is derived from the word, again, we, we say Wabanaki, but that's incorrect as well. So it's actually Aoepanaki, which means people of the dawn. They're a Native American people belonging to the Algonquin family of Native American tribes. And their history that I could find dates back to the 1680s. And, um, you know, they had populations running all the way from the Rockies all the way to eastern Canada, Vermont, Maine. Currently, they're about mm, 2,500 to 3,000 Apanaki in the U.S. And in Canada, apparently, there's probably close to like 9,000 to 10,000. The Apanaki were part of the Aupanaki Confederacy. This is amazing. So there were several Eastern Algonquin nations, including uh, the Maliseet and the Penobscot tribes, and collectively they were called the Aupanaki. Okay, so that's the confederacy that they had at the time. And they actually had a capital, and the capital was located in Arcadia, Maine. So the capital uh, was called Awapanakik, which meant the Dawnland. And I just find that so romantic. If you think about that portion of Maine and Arcadia and the coast, I mean, it's just beautiful. Well, it also tells you that like they, they, they knew how to pick the beautiful spots <laughs> to settle. Yeah, they sure did. I mean, absolutely yeah. beautiful. Um, so the, the tribe that impacts the White Mountains in particular uh, was called the Western Apanaki tribe. And historically, again, they lived in Vermont and New Hampshire. And they actually still have an organization in Vermont. So um, it's pretty cool if you look it up. So let's get into the grammar. This is the most amazing thing. So what I found was some changes here. Like J is pronounced Z. W is more like an owl or owl as if you were to say owl u is pronounced eo the letter c is pronounced tsi. so the, the word chaga like jimmy chaga would actually be saga uh it's really interesting the a is the one that messed me up the most because it's it's not like a uh ah it's a like master so that's the one that really gets interesting um so here we go. Let's check these out. I did some research, Mike. I found your name. You did? Okay. It would, yeah, yeah. It would be pronounced Miss Al. Miss Al. Miss Al. I like that better than actual, I like that better than Michael. <laughs> <laughs> now for Martin and myself, Stomp, we don't have our names in the language, but if you were to pronounce based upon the grammar rules, Martin, yours would be Maytin, 
and then stomp would be stomp. Interesting, huh? <laughs> yeah. Now, this is cool. This is a little inside baseball, but my wife has uh, a tattoo, which is on her arm, and it's Ajiakachuk. So we always thought it was Ajiakachuk from Mount Washington. Uh, it's the coolest looking tattoo. But here we go. Ready? This is the way you're actually supposed to pronounce this. This is, this is the Native American word for Mount Washington. Well, this is the Apanaki way to say it. So it's Agiotsotsohok. Really? So we're way off. I know. I know a lot of people call it Agiotsotsohok, but it's it's Agiotsotsohok. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's cool. Um, Yeah, it's wicked cool. So I, I just put together a few hiking phrases in in the language, which might be fun. So let's check these out. Okay. Um, let's see. It looks like rain. Sogel on Giskat. Give it a shot, Mike. Sogel on Giskat. <laughs> very good. Very good. <laughs> you know what it reminds me? What's the, um, what are those like, uh, what's the wharf on um, Star Trek? What is his language? He's either a Klingon or a Romulan, isn't he? Yeah, Klingon. Yeah, Klingon. That's what it feels like. So, oh yeah, yeah. yeah okay, uh, this is a good one. I'm hungry. Nikatopi. Yeah, this is a good one for my uh, my wife actually because she gets hungry and grumpy. So I'm gonna say, I'm gonna tell her that she can tell me that. Do you know like are any of the like the tribe members that they speak the language now or is it just they understand it from an academic perspective? Um, I, you know, when I went to the website, it's all in English. And um, I, I dropped them an email, actually. I'll keep you posted. I was hoping to find somebody that could come in and talk to us about their history and their language that really knows it because, you know, it is very fascinating and uh, it's a beautiful language when you really start looking at it. Yeah. So I'll keep you posted on that. But uh, check it out. Um, it'll pop right up. If you if you type in Apanaki, uh, Vermont, it, it, I think that's the primary tribal organization in the region at the moment. So Mike, what comes to mind is if you're looking for content for your t-shirts, I think some of these phrases in in authentic native language are yeah. perfect. Oh yeah. Very cool. Very cool. In Apanaki. <laughs> yeah. I, well, you have one. Yeah. I like the, uh, so I'll try this one. It's, I want to go home, go ahead. which sometimes when I'm hiking, I sort of get that. So this is. <laughs> no, no, it's got to be, are we there yet? How far to the summit? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But <laughs> you know what? Oh my God. I don't even know if I can try this. So I want to go home is uh, Nigarti Mondizi Niowig Own Minok. Very good. So, yeah, it's perfect. Wow. Right on the money. Yeah. Hey, this is a good one for all the couples out there. This is some, sometimes you do not listen to me. Sao e nata kapest awipa. Sometimes you do not listen to me. This is all good stuff. So I'll post these all on the show notes uh, here. And then yeah. um, stuff like some animal names, some body parts. You want to you throw a couple out? Sure. Let's see. Um, bear would be aau asos. A deer would be Nolk I. Uh, fish, Neymas. Moose is Moz. Uh, it's just awesome. Um, yeah. We'll post all the words if you want. I will just put them up there so yeah. the slasher fan base can learn them and uh, start talking. Yeah. And if you listen <laughs> to the show and you're, you're part of the Abenaki tribe, let us know. We'll have you on here, whether you're in Canada or Vermont or wherever. Yeah, well, that'd be fantastic. Awesome. Cool. Good job. Yeah. Nice work, Stomp. Um, 
so next up, we've got a couple of search and rescue um, news stories to cover here. So the first one is um, so the 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 snowmobile issues are starting to slow down, and the hiking is starting to pick up. So <laughs> um, hiker suffered from yeah. unknown medical condition rescued from Carter Hut. So this happened on March twenty first. So the, over the weekend. Uh, fishing game uh, and rescue volunteers from Androscoggin Valley, uh, Androscoggin Valley Search and Rescue, um, Stoneheart Outdoor Learning Opportunities, which is solo, uh, AMC, and then Mountain Rescue Services responded to a call of a hiker suffering from an unknown medical condition at Carter Notch Hut. Uh, initial call came in at seven o'clock from a Garmin alarm indicating a problem. Uh, the hiker is 49-year-old from uh, Dubai, United United Arab Emirates, um, had hiked to Carter Notch Hut, planned to spend the night, and was uh, walking around the hut. He started to experience a concerning medical ailment that necessitated a rescue response. So due to the nature of the reported medical condition and distance to the near, nearest road, calls were made to get as many volunteers as possible to to deal with the four uh, a four mile carry out, so they had about twenty volunteers and eight conservation officers respond. So mm. they had to. Um, I guess he had sudden improvement when they got there, so they wanted to have him attempt to walk slowly out on his own power. So they were able to stay close to him, and uh, about two hours into the hike, they had to put him into a litter. Uh, to make it out the final mile. So it took them two hours to get three miles, and then they carried him out. And I guess all good at 2 a.m., they got him out and, and put him in an ambulance. So I don't know. It doesn't say what the medical condition is, but maybe he was having some heart issues or something. Yeah, that's a four-mile trail. Yeah. What what struck me about this, uh, the conditions, I mean, if Smartsbrook here with the glare ice is any indication, then that trail was pretty, pretty sketchy. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So, but... All's well that ends well. Um, so that's that is all that we had in the the White Mountains. But I did want to talk about, and again, I don't know the Adirondacks, Martin. Maybe you've been up there before, but um, there was another situation. A Connecticut hiker was found deceased on Friday. Sixty uh, three year old gentleman in New York's Adirondack Mountains after he's reported missing. Um, gentleman, sixty three years old. He was, went missing on Wednesday. His last known location was Marcy Dam Lean To. And uh, they were able to locate his his car at the uh, the parking lot, and then they found his body ten thirty on Friday. So he had signed a trail register on Mount Colden as his destination. And then I read another article. It's not, actually not on this one I'm looking at, but there was another article that said they found him under about four feet of snow. So they don't know if he had fallen and then got covered up with a snow drift or whether or not he got hung up in an avalanche or what the story was. But it did look like it was a bit of a steep section there. I don't really know. It's called a a trap dike, I think. So I don't really know the area that well to to comment one way or the other, but a sad situation. I don't know, Martin, have you been been over the Adirondacks at all? I've never once uh, hiked. I've been in the Adirondacks for vacation, but not hiked at all. I don't know anything about it. Yeah, neither have I. Yeah. So, and then the last one, stop. I think we missed this one last week. I can't, if we repeat, if we did it and we're, I'm repeating it, I apologize. But there was a, um, 
and our friend George, who has been on the show a couple of times, you know, he's, he talked pretty in depth about the, like ice safety and we definitely want to have him back in next year before uh, the winter season. But, uh, there was a 70 year old man from Moultonboro that, um, had passed away his, he was, drove his truck on the ice on Berry Pond and the truck mm-hmm. went in head first and then uh, he, he didn't make it out. So, and I can't remember if I did this story last week or not. So I wanted to just cover it. I again. think we may have, but it's actually a really good reminder because this is the time when the ice is fragile moving forward. This is the time where, you know, people are going to start venturing out there and getting in trouble. So just be super careful. Yeah, yeah, stay safe out there, and uh, that's all I got. Oh, uh, one other thing, Stomp, I did put together uh, a count of the snowmobile media stories this winter. Oh, yeah. Do you? I don't know if you looked on the script or not the numbers there, but do you have a guess on how many how many um, snowmobile res, uh, calls there were? I'm not sure. I mean, it seemed like it was <laughs> close to 100 or something. Yeah, Who knows? it was 40 plus, 40 plus media reports. For Amazing, uh, for snowmobile yeah. accidents this winter, yeah, I'd like to compare that to the summer numbers with ATVs. That'd be really interesting to see if there's a difference. Yeah, well, I mean, if you figure like the snowmobile season's what like twelve weeks, you know, three months or so, like, and we yeah. average around a hundred to one hundred and twenty hiking calls a year that are reported in the media. So snowmobiles are at the equivalent of hikers at this point. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> incredible high volume yeah exactly so stay safe out there but uh, but that's all i got so martin it was great to catch up again thank you so much and again yeah always always great to be with you guys it's such an engaging bunch of content you put together it's fascinating yes yeah, it's good stuff good, thank you by martin's book and uh we'll definitely martin i'm sure we'll have you back in again in the future see you next week and happy birthday yeah i'll catch you on the other side of 50 thank you for listening If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information on slasserpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until next time, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? Seems to me the most common is being unprepared, and I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.